invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter in the New Testament. We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through the first part of verse 10, but focusing our attention in the sermon on verses 4 through 10. So hear God's word. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them into extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If all these things are true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If you've ever done any sort of investing, then you probably have read or heard someone tell you past performance is no guarantee of future results. Right, that little sentence is required by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the other SEC that we're not as familiar with. Right? Uh, if you are selling an investment, uh, you must tell your clients this thing, this truth, this sentence, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Right? You don't want to base your expectations of, of what's going to happen in the future on what has happened already in the past. It's a wise warning to heed in the financial, the financial realm. Uh, we've seen it, haven't we, in the past, say, decade, right? That someone who promises uh, that, that your return will always be exactly the same every single year. It will always be what has always been returned. Right? That's called a Ponzi scheme, right? That's someone who is deceiving those who are investing. Well, this evening in our text, Peter is telling us that the exact opposite of that investment warning is true when it comes to God and his judgment and his salvation. How God has performed in the past is absolutely a guarantee of how he will perform in the future. Now, you may have noticed that in this section, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, what we have is one long conditional sentence, a long if-then statement. There are three different cosmic and, and world historical events that constitute the ifs in verses 4 to 8. And then the then comes in verses 9 and 10. But notice as well that verse 4 starts with the little word for. For if God did not. Why is Peter writing this long if-then 
statement? Why is Peter wanting to draw our attention to these historical events? Well, verses 4 to 10 flow out of what he has just written in verse 3 about the false teachers. Dean unpacked it for us last week, but remember what you see there in verse 3. He's just spoken that their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Peter knows that, that God's people often feel as if the opposite is the case. He knows that we often feel like God is asleep at the wheel, like God is slacking off on the job, like he's loitering or lingering at a convenience store. He's taking his sweet time when it comes to judgment and to salvation. He's missing the open window of opportunity to bring his judgment, it seems. And so as we saw Elijah accuse Baal of being asleep, so it often seems that, that God, his judgment has grown drowsy and has fallen asleep and people are getting away with all sort of sin and wickedness and injustice and false teaching as the context is here. Jeremiah in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 has put words to this feeling of things are not right. God is, is not doing what he ought to be doing, what we, we think he should, he should be doing. Listen to what Jeremiah says in a prayer. He says, Righteous are you, O Yahweh, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but you're far from their mind. We read those verses and we can feel that in our own bones, can't we? God, why don't you judge those who are opposed to your truth? Why have you not yet delivered your people from oppression and persecution and affliction at the hands of the wicked? Where are you? When will you act? When will you do something? And so Peter, here in verses 4 through 10, flowing out of that statement that their condemnation from long ago is not idle, their destruction is not asleep, even though it feels like it is, even though we think maybe Peter isn't, isn't right in that verse 3, Peter wants to take us back to the Old Testament. He's saying, let me tell you a story, actually three stories. Right? You already know these stories, but let me remind you of how God has dealt with the fallen angels first, how God has dealt with the ancient world and with Noah, second, and how God has dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And by reminding us of these three stories, Peter is driving home to us the point that you see there in verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to do both of these things. Tonight, I want us to look at these three examples that prove the point of God's past performance indeed being a guarantee of his future judgment and salvation. We'll look at these three examples and then seek to apply it even further. So first, the fallen angels. Exhibit A for Peter is these fallen angels. He says, God did not spare them when they sinned, but on the contrary, he cast them into hell. He cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Verse 4. Now Peter seems here to be referring to the rebellion by angelic beings before man was created. All right? The Bible is, 
almost entirely silent on exactly what happened back then. And so we ought not to speculate and come up with ideas on our own. But, but it does seem from the scriptures that a group of angels led by the angel that we now know as Satan or Beelzebul or Apollyon rejected God's rule over them. And now like prisoners on death row, they are held in prison chains awaiting the ultimate judgment on the last day when Jesus Christ returns. Now, it's not clear uh, to, to me whether Peter is saying that, that certain fallen angels are held in chains while others have been permitted to afflict mankind, or whether he would say that all fallen angels, all demons are uh, bound now, and, and though uh, through the coming of Christ they have been disarmed, yet as Peter said in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, uh, they are still in their capacity as demons prowling about like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. It's not clear to me which uh, is the case. That's a question I'd love to ask Peter when we get to heaven. Uh, but uh, though the Bible doesn't reveal as much as we might like about demons, uh, yet his point is clear. The ultimate judgment upon these fallen angels has been delayed for thousands and thousands of years. Yes, from our human vantage point, but they will be judged. Their judgment is inevitable. Their judgment is inescapable. And if even angels were not exempt from the judgment of God, Peter is saying, even though that judgment might tarry, how much less will mortal men evade the judgment of God. So that's his first example. His second example is the ancient world and Noah. This comes, of course, from Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, uh, the story of the global flood and Noah's deliverance. God did not spare the ancient world, Peter reminds us, but on the contrary, as we remember in Genesis uh, 6, verses 5 and 11, he, he saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. He saw that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with, with violence. He saw that they were ungodly in every way, and so he determined to destroy them with floodwaters, along with every other living creature that he had created. So God did not spare them, but he did preserve Noah and his family. Noah and his family found grace in the eyes of Yahweh, the text tells us. Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their four wives were guarded and protected from the floodwaters through the ark that God commanded them to build. And in this passage, Peter gives us a, a bit of information that is, is not revealed explicitly in uh, the, the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. It, it can be implied, but here Peter makes it explicit. He tells us that Noah was a herald, a preacher, a proclaimer of righteousness. Now, if we were to go back into the book of Genesis, we would see God tell us that Noah was a righteous man. Uh, he was blameless in his generation. He was walking with God when everyone else was walking away from God. Uh, he was the only one that God saw as righteous in his sight. And, and Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that, that Noah had a righteousness that was by faith, an imputed righteousness, a reckoned righteousness. He was counted righteous by God through his faith. His life itself, therefore, as a righteous man, one who had the imputed and the imparted righteousness of God, his life itself would be a testimony, would be a proclamation to God's righteousness. And certainly, 
by building an enormous boat in the middle of uh, you know, nowhere, right, far away from any large body of water, certainly that process uh, would itself be testifying to the coming wrath of God and calling the world to repentance. And, and, and though these things are true, that, that his life would preach and that his boat would preach, I do think that Peter is, is saying something even further, that, that Noah himself proclaimed and spoke the truth of God and his righteousness, a righteousness that was demanded, a righteousness that was offered, a righteousness that God called his people to walk in, having been justified by faith. Now, we don't know where those opportunities to preach might have come from, uh, whether they were afforded by building the ark and, and having his neighbors mock him or ask him questions, or, or whether Noah might have even been an itinerant preacher going about and proclaiming as a prophet these glorious words of, of truth, speaking of the, the righteousness, the holiness of God, of the need for repentance and, and faith that they might receive righteousness and justification be spared the judgment of God. Uh, whatever the case might be, however Noah proclaimed and heralded God's righteousness, we see here a difference, don't we, between the, the, the fallen angels and the ancient world. Uh, the angels' judgment was inescapable. But for the fallen world, the ancient world that rebelled, uh, there was still hope. There was a message of hope. He was preaching and proclaiming righteousness, calling men and women to repentance. There was a righteousness of faith available to anyone who repented and believed. Judgment, though inevitable if one refused to repent and believe, was also escapable if one did repent and believe. Because God was not only a God of justice, but a God of grace. Now, alas, we know that no one repented and believed. Right. The only people who were saved were Noah, his sons, and Noah's wife and his sons' wives. Right. That's the only ones who presumably believed the word of God, repented, and received the righteousness of faith. And yet, we see Peter's point. God will judge the wicked in due time, and he will keep and preserve his elect who walk with him, who obey him, who testify to his character, who stand up and against all the ungodliness that is all around us. God will judge and God will save. There is a message of judgment to fallen men and there is a message of hope. And God is faithful to do both. He's faithful to do both. Well, finally, Peter's last example it comes from Genesis chapter 18 and 19. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, their wickedness is notorious. Right? Peter alludes to it with his reference there in verse 7 uh, to the sensual conduct of the wicked. Right? In verse 8, he speaks of their lawless deeds. God said in Genesis 18, 20 that their sin was exceedingly grave. And at the, at the heart of their sin, of course, was this homosexual tendency and, and homosexual desires. But Ezekiel 16 reminds us that, that those homosexual desires flowed from, from even more sin and different sins. He says, behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. She had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty, and thus they committed abominations before me. 
They were a wicked pair of cities, and not just these two cities, but the other cities in the plain around where they were. And God tells us here in 2 Peter, as well as in Genesis, that he removed them. He turned their cities to ashes by raining fire and brimstone from heaven. Peter puts it in verse 6 that God made an example of them, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He condemned them to extinctions, turning them to ashes, making an example of them. This is what will happen to those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel. This is what will happen if you are ungodly and unrepentant. But there's another example here, isn't there? Not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but righteous Lot. Now, that phrase may sound like uh, what's the word? Uh, blanking, completely blanking out. Two words, Ken, that, are, that, are, that seem contradictory but aren't. Oxymoron, thank you. All right. Righteous lot, you know? Jumbo shrimp. Like, wait a minute. Righteous lot? Like, when was the last time you read the book of Genesis? If you read the Genesis story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, you're thinking, there ain't no way that you would call Lot a righteous man. Right? He was. Uh, you remember when the men uh, come to his house and they demand that he bring out the men who had come into his house and they say, well, you know, we want to have sex with them. And, and, and what does Lot do but offer his daughters to them instead? You're thinking, wait a minute, how is, that, how is that someone that we would describe as righteous? Oh, Lot is the one who, uh, when the angels urged him to leave the city, he had to be physically held by the hand and taken out of the city and sent away to be rescued from the judgment to come. How can Peter call this man righteous? And he actually does it twice. He, he speaks of righteous lot in verse seven, and then in verse eight, he speaks of his righteous soul. Well, let me just say this. If Peter calls him righteous, he's righteous, right? So that means we've got to go back to the Old Testament and say, what are we missing? Well, and let me, let me give a couple examples of things that we might be missing. Remember that Abraham, uh, in his prayer uh, to God in Genesis 18, asking God to spare the city of Sodom uh, if he finds 50 righteous people there. And then you remember that he says, you know, hang on, God, what about 45? Lord, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And he comes back these multiple times to God saying, Will you spare the city if there are but 10 righteous people there? Well, the answer was there were probably only three, right? Lot and his two daughters. Because his wife has turned into a pillar of salt, looking back fondly at the city that she's just been dragged out of. But you see the point. Lot was a righteous man in the way that, that Abraham was thinking. And we... We have to make sure that, that though we, we can see, yes, Lot was sullied, he was compromised by living in such a lawless city. His moral sense was defective for sure. And yet he was a righteous man compared to the world that was around him. Remember, he did protect the men that had come to visit him, albeit at almost the expense of his daughters. But he did protect those men. And you remember the men of Sodom came and, and were so angry and they protested that here is this, this newcomer to the, the town who's acting as if he is our judge. And so Peter here is right to call Lot a righteous man. In fact, he gives us insight, doesn't he, into Lot's inner person, his inner turmoil that he experienced living 
in the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 7, he says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. In verse 8, he says that he was tormenting his righteous soul, or perhaps we might translate it, he, he felt his righteous soul tormented by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He couldn't stand what was going on in his cities. He was grieved, he was angered, he was afflicted by it. And this too was a manifestation of his righteousness. Right? So, so yes, we look at the person of Lot and we see uh, much, much um, uh, mixture of, of, of good and evil, right? We see in Lot this, uh, this, this compromise, this worldliness, this syncretism perhaps, and yet Lot is, as Peter tells us, at heart a righteous man, not a perfect man. What righteous man is a perfect man? Yet he belonged to the Lord, and the Lord rescued him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's Peter's point, isn't it? The Lord turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And the Lord rescued righteous Lot, making him an example of what will happen to those who belong to the Lord, to those who are distressed and tormented by the wickedness that they see all around them. Yes, they themselves are sinners, but they know that the Lord is righteous and they long, they desire to live in a righteous manner. They long and desire to live in a righteous city. And Peter here says that the Lord will rescue his people. So we've come to the end of these three stories, the fallen angels, Noah in the ancient world, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. We've come to the conclusion of Peter's train of logic if God did not spare the fallen angels or the ancient world or Sodom and Gomorrah, and if he did spare and preserve and rescue Noah and Lot and his daughters, then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under judgment, under punishment, until the day of judgment. If I had to take these two phrases of verse 9 and, and sort of condense them down for you to, to, to have some hooks to grab onto, it would be this. First, Peter says to the godly, do not be dismayed. And second, he says to the ungodly, do not be deceived. Don't be dismayed, but don't be deceived. Let's think about those two as we close. First, don't be dismayed, Peter is saying to you who are godly. God's hand is not short. He is not limited in power or wisdom or knowledge or love. He will rescue his people in due time, in his time. This word trials can also be translated temptations. When we live in a fallen world, we know that we will endure hardships. We will endure trials. We will be tempted to sin against the holiness of God. Our suffering, whether it's physical or spiritual, it will come. It will be our portion and our lot as the people of God in this life. And like Lot, oftentimes the, the suffering that we experience is an inner torment. Right? It is this distress and, and, and torture by what we see and by what we hear. Indeed, if you are not distressed, if you are not tormented by what you see and hear, even in our own country today, 
Right? Then you have perhaps become even more compromised than Lot appeared to be in Genesis. In this sexually perverted age, even within our own churches, right? How thankful I am for verses seven and eight. Uh, not only do they give us words to express how we so often feel, and, and, and they affirm the, the righteousness of those feelings, right? the righteousness of that distress and of, of that torment within, but they also help us to, to direct those feelings appropriately as we engage in compassion with those who, as he says in verse 10, indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Right? There is a, 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 oftentimes we are tempted to just be angry, to just lash out. Right? And yet here we see Lot distressed by what he sees, tormented within by what he sees. That's a righteous emotion, a righteous affection. And yes, there will be times when God doesn't seem to see or to hear our cries for help and deliverance, when he doesn't seem to change anything. We see the godless prosper and succeed and carry on in their lawlessness without any check. Even Though when God defers his judgments, Peter is saying, do not lose heart. Do not despair. In the midst of our distress, God hears when we cry out to him, deliver us from evil. In the midst of our temptation, God provides ways of escape, Peter is saying. In the midst of our trials, he will give us strength to endure. And so let us, like Noah, continue to live and to speak forth the righteousness of God, the grace of God. Let us remember Lot's wife, as Jesus told us in Luke, and not give in to the love of this world. Let us persist in godliness by grace and keep crying out to him from our heart of distress and, and torment. So to you who are godly this evening, do not be dismayed. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and temptations. But if you persist in believing what is not true, if you persist in living in an ungodly and, and unrepentant manner, then, then Peter would say to you, do not be deceived. Especially if you keep on indulging in the, the lust of defiling passion, if you keep on despising authority, whether in the state or in the church or ultimately God himself, then do not be deceived. Do not be deluded. God is not mocked. You will not finally get away with your sin, but as Moses tells us in Numbers 32, be sure that it will find you out. Do not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. If you keep sowing to the flesh, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, you will reap corruption, dissipation, destruction, decay according to the flesh. Yes, God is long-suffering. Yes, God waits, and yet, if you persist in unrepentance, he is keeping you under punishment until the day of judgment. But even to you, I don't want you to miss the hope that's found in this passage, the gospel hope, that, that for you, even you who this evening are unrepentant and unbelieving, there is hope. You can turn from your false living, from your sensual living, from your false believing, your rejection of God's authority over you, you can trust in Jesus Christ, who alone will save you from your sin, who alone will save you from punishment, who will give you a righteousness, 
A righteousness by faith. A righteousness that you cannot manufacture or build for yourself or work out for yourself. And he can give you this righteousness because he himself has endured the punishment of God that sinners deserve on the cross. He bore the full weight of God's wrath on the cross. And if you put your trust in him, if you repent of your sin, then he did that for you. He took that wrath of God for you in your place. One reason that God delays his judgment, you see, is because, as we'll hear later on in this book, he is patient. He is not willing that any of his elect should perish, but that all of those that he has chosen will come to repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Today, this evening, as you hear my voice, Today is the day that the gospel is being offered, that you are being called by the words of of Peter, by the warning of the fallen angels and the warning of the ancient world and the warning of Sodom and Gomorrah. Turn from your sin. Hear the preaching of Noah, the, the preaching of Lot. Hear the preaching of Peter. Draw near to God through Jesus and be rescued, even as Lot was rescued, even as Noah was rescued. If there's sort of one little phrase that you might take away this evening and remember what Peter is is teaching you, remember this, the God of justice cannot be defied, but the God of grace can absolutely be relied upon. The God of justice cannot be defied, but the God of grace can absolutely be relied upon. Do not be dismayed. If you belong to the Lord and do not be deceived if you do not. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you. We thank you that you have given to us this word. You've given to us this logical statement, this sentence, Lord, speaking of stories from the past, stories that teach us who you are. Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you, O Lord, that your past performance is absolutely a guarantee of your future results, your future performance. So Lord, help us to believe that you know how to rescue the godly from their trials and temptations, and you know how to keep the ungodly under punishment for the day of judgment. Lord, would you bring conversion? Would you bring repentance? Would you bring faith to each person here in this room, to each person who hears my voice online? We pray, O Father, that you would glorify yourself by drawing your elect to Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a perfect Savior for sinners. And we ask, O Lord, that you would spare us, that you would deliver us, Lord, that you would continue to give us grace to stand strong in the midst of our distress, in the midst of our torment, in the midst of our oppression. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to bear witness, to proclaim the the glories of your righteousness to the world around us so that even they too might experience the grace of the gospel as you've given to us. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.